This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dojo Live, our final episode for this week. My name is Kim Lantis, airing from my home in Hermosillo, Sonora. You'll have to forgive me if Sansa, our dog, barks. She does that a lot. Co-hosting with me today is America Guerrero. Hey, America. Hey, everybody. And she is in Mexico City. Perfect. So maybe you'll get some traffic noise or something. But the real star of today's show is our guest, Rory Baker, who is the CEO and co-founder of Allegro. Thank you for joining us today, Rory. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a good conversation. So Rory, before we get started, we're really interested in knowing more about you, you as an individual, you as a person. Talk about sorry, you. I think, I think <laughs> I lost your connection a little bit there. No worries. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so. Me? You, we wanted to no know, worries. nice to meet you, Rory, and if you could share a bit more about you, we'd surely appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I started my career um, in technology after working for one of London's fastest growing startups. Um, we scaled from around 8,000 recurring customers to 40,000 recurring customers. Um, and that was a pretty fun process. I knew that I liked working in startups and I was actually lucky enough to work at that company with my brother. So we decided we wanted to work together and we, we felt we made a good team. So we kind of combined our skills uh, and started the company uh, back in January 2018. Um, now we have uh, another co-founder who is our third adopted brother as well, Radu, who started with us and he manages engineering and he's our CTO. Um, and yeah, since then we've been having a blast. We enjoy, you know, technology, building things in SaaS and, um, you know, helping people make sure that they don't land in uh, spam folders. Perfect. Yeah, great. Thank you. A true family business. I love it. So let's talk a little bit more about Allegro. You mentioned helping emails not land in spam folders. Tell us more about your company and what it is that you set out to do. Yeah, sure. So essentially, uh, what we do is refer sales and marketing teams uh, when they go to market. Um, we have an inbox placement platform. It's a fairly new type of technology. And what we essentially do is help them get better open and reply rates on the email campaigns that they send to customers and prospects alike um, when they go to market. Um, yeah, so, so that's what we do uh, as an elevator pitch. All right. Well, good to know. Good to know. America, why don't we talk a little bit about what Ruri wants to talk about today? What's today's choice topic? Sure. So the topic is the science of hitting the inbox. So why your emails are landing in spam and how you can fix it. So please, could you tell us Ruri, Ruri, Ruri. Yeah. Did I say it correctly? Yes. Ruri, uh, yeah. Could you explain us why did you choose this topic and why is it relevant? Sure. So it's it's relevant today now more than ever. Um, you know, if we wind the clocks back, uh, you know, five to ten years ago, um, it was really only a small group of businesses that were highly tech enabled, using marketing automation, using technology uh, to reach out to customers on mass um, and in a personalized way. Since then, that's changed a lot. You know, everyone today 
is doing that. Um, the growth of that industry in general has led to that, but also uh, the work from home movement has just changed the life of salespeople across the board to using all these automation systems. Now, in turn, what's happened um, is email inbox providers, so primarily Google and Microsoft, um, have changed the way that they decide whether your emails go into the primary inbox, which is where you and I read our emails every day, or if they get filtered away into another folder, like the spam folder, the promotions folder, or the unfocused folder if you're in Microsoft. Um, so that's why, that's why this topic is really relevant for sales and marketing people, as well as anyone working in tech um, nowadays. Um, what's changed is uh, email providers used to be fairly proactive, and what they used to look at on a high level is, have you been reported for spam? So, and when you were, you know, they start to filter your emails away, maybe shut down your account and block your IP, which is never good. What they do now, though, is they actually look at the engagement that your email account receives um, across their user base. So, what do other Microsoft and Google users do when they receive your emails? So, we liken this and we compare it to a bit of a credit score they've created, and we call it sender reputation. Okay, so, sense. if you yeah, so if you have a, a really good credit score, that's going to be someone who they send emails, they always get opened, people always respond to them, um, and they have a high credit score, which means when you send emails out, they're landing in the right place. But on the other hand, if people tend to not open your emails very often compared to the normal Google user or the normal Microsoft user, or they tend to not reply as often, your sender reputation will decline and your emails start getting placed in spam or the promotions folders, which of course people don't actually enter and read every day. They can barely keep up with what's inside their main inbox. Um, so what we let you do is we let you measure that by using a crowdsourced network of B2B email accounts. And we also proactively help you improve your sender reputation over time by um, augmenting your sender activity. So if you're an SDR, you might send a lot of emails and get, unfortunately, a smaller number of responses because you don't know the people you're reaching out to. So what we let you do is plug in Allegro to your email account and receive more responses, uh, send emails out to people, make sure that they get opened. And when you do land in spam a portion of the time, uh, move your email out of spam and into the primary inbox. And what that does is it lets you get better open and response rates inside your marketing automation system. Okay, so let me make sure I'm understanding this correctly. In some ways, Allegro is working as email networking, maybe to kind of validate my emails, even maybe if they're not necessarily going to my absolute key personas or my targets, but you're validating that I am a real person, that I am worth opening, etc. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, validation is very much about, you know, when I sent an email, did it go to a real email address? Did it go to a real email account? We're more about after the email has been delivered, where did it land? So what we let you do in real time is by using a crowdsource network, which means when you join Allegro, emails get sent out to other people that use Allegro in a specific way. And because they're Allegro users, we can see where your emails land, which means we calculate on a daily basis on average, what portion of your emails land in a primary inbox versus the spam folders. Um, and that's the first step to understanding how what you're doing is impacting that sender reputation score that we discussed. So we do that. And what we also do is, is help by responding to those emails automatically, moving them out of spam, marking those important to raise the sender reputation over time. And then we also help with content with some larger companies because we have a lot of data. 
And in addition, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No. Okay, we need to figure it out how to. No, it's not you, America. I think there's okay. just delays and things in the connection. Oh, okay. We okay. interrupt each other inadvertently. Oh, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. In addition to this uh, tracking evaluation uh, element, is there something else? Is there another unique element? Is there a differentiating thing that you have at Allegro? What else could you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the biggest things that makes a difference to your content, as well as just your sender reputation and are people responding to your emails? Are they opening them? Are you getting replies now? Is the content that you actually write? So email providers are very smart nowadays. What they're able to do is use AI to automatically compare your content um, against other people that have been reported for spam recently or have landed in spam folders or email users didn't like in general. So people didn't open the email, they didn't respond to it, et cetera. Um, so what we're able to do with that network of accounts that we discussed as well, is we let you A-B test your content, but we let you test two variations of your content and see what keywords could I change to reach the primary inbox more often compared to the spam folder. Um, and we're able to do that for people because we can see both sides of those inboxes. We can see what goes in, but we can also see where it lands once it arrives. So that's an interesting thing we're able to do as well as you know monitor and help improve your sender reputation is let you know what content and what keywords and what structural changes um, are more likely to help you get on front of the people that you really want to. That's great. Talking about some of this content and these keywords, I'd like to take it back a bit more. Let's go old school before we go new school, right? Obviously, your tech sure. is helping us with our email, with our data, helping us see better what's working, what isn't working. But let's just say I'm starting from scratch, ground zero, and I'm trying to get my messaging. I'm trying to get my sequencing. What types of tips would you have for just making a nice, solid start to try to get out in front of the pack? before we're even utilizing the tech to track our success. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things to set you up for success. The first one I would say is what type of email are you sending? If you're sending an email to an opt-in list of customers, then that's fine to use something like MailChimp, which is like a third-party server, or SendGrid, which will send emails on your behalf, but it's not actually coming from your email account. That's okay if it's an opt-in list, but sometimes people make a mistake, and what they do is they try to send cold emails through those platforms. So the first step I would say is if you're doing cold outreach, if you're doing prospecting, you need to make sure you're using an email provider that sends emails through your individual mailbox uh, uniquely rather than using someone else's server because you're either going to get booted off if it's MailChimp or you're not going to get a good open and response rate because they're not meant for those types of communications. So that's a really good first step. Then what I would say to people specifically on your email account, there's some other things you can implement and check to make sure you're literally set up for success. And those are aspects like your DMARC record, your DKIM record and your SPF record. And having all of these set up correctly on your domain and your email account indicate to email providers that you're a safe, secure email account, which means it's less likely something in your message is going to be risky um, and compromise someone you're sending to. Um, so that really helps as well for getting a good inbox placement as a starting point. Um, then what I would do is volume. So, and I talk a bit more about the volume and what you choose to send, how often you choose to send it. So people make the mistake sometimes of just, pouring fuel on the fire 
um, to try and overcome bad engagement or the result that they're not happy with. And that's the worst thing you could do. Because if you send a lot of emails, like we discussed, and you don't get a good response, um, you know that will decline your sender reputation. But if then, if then you send even more of the same thing, it's just going to be a vicious cycle where your sender reputation gets worse and worse. So we advise to people that for one connected email account, um, you should only be sending roughly uh, between 40 to 80 outbound emails per day max, which means you're emailing around 1,000 uh, to 1,200 unique emails per month that are for prospecting. Um, and that's a good starting point. Don't do much more than that because you shouldn't have to if your message is engaging and getting mm -hmm. in, the right, uh, in the right folder to begin with. Um, so those are a few of the tips. You mentioned unique emails. So one within that 40, 80 emails per day, or let's say thousand a month, um, that could increase if I'm emailing the same person two or three times, let's say within that month. So yeah, let's say know. maybe it's 3000 emails, but it's 1000 ish new emails, correct? Yeah, so we're actually talking about all the emails added up, not just the emails to the next person. So it's even less people than that. Okay, um, okay. You know, so if you're sending, you know, three emails to each person, you can have around 300 prospects and obviously be at 900. So you can't Got send it. many more than Got that. Um, okay, so, so it's yeah, actual it's emails, not who. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's actual emails. And of course, you can make a decision whether you want to send multiple emails to the same people inside one month or spread them out more and get around more people. We'd usually advise sending somewhere between, you know, three to seven emails in a prospecting cadence and having a disengagement trigger. So if someone doesn't open your email three times in a row, maybe it's a good idea to unenroll them, take them out of HubSpot, take them out of SalesLoft and go after someone new um, and maybe pick up with them way down the line. Right. Okay, great. That, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And so then it's really important that we're actually taking advantage of those 1000 emails, right? So this kind of goes yeah. back to key personas or making sure that we're targeting the right individuals. Is Allegro's tech able to help with that piece of the puzzle? Um, so that's not really our go-to. You know, we typically, at the moment, we work with companies that already have that figured out. So they already use a, a data intelligence com uh, contact platform like a, a ZoomInfo um, or maybe Cognizum to actually get contact information on their target buyers and customers. And then the question is, those platforms are fairly expensive for most businesses. So if I email all the people on that list and not all of them see my message, um, that's a big problem to solve. So that's more of where we come in. Um, we actually used to do that way back in the day, but we figured out there was a lot of platforms um, already offering it and we should just niche down and focus on on this new, um, mm -hmm. this new space of, you know, inbox placement. Perfect. Yeah, I can see that this platform is helpful for everybody. But do you have like a specific vertical that you provide this platform, this service? Yeah, sure. So we're typically talking to someone at a company that is in the marketing leadership or the sales leadership of the businesses. Um, and if they're slightly smaller, maybe just the general, you know, CEO or, or C-level person that works there because they kind of wear lots of hats like I do myself. Um, but in terms of the specific verticals we work with, um, it's, it's businesses that use email as a primary channel to go to market. And then also um, early adopters. So our customers are businesses like Saster, um, a big community of SaaS companies you might know, all the way to businesses like Black Kite Cybersecurity, who are obviously um, a, a software vendor. So it really ranges, but they typically tend to be businesses that are 
you know, looking at the hottest tech trends and early adopters of new technology to try and just stay ahead of their competition. Cool. I'd like to look a bit more. I think it makes a lot of sense, the the networking and the structure of, of how Allegro functions and what you do. Um, I do have the question, like the keywords and when you're looking at then, okay, now, okay, great. First problem solved, my emails are getting opened or whatever. Then how can we, you mentioned the reply rate. So I'm thinking that that's kind of coming in where some of these keywords and things are to one help open with the open rate and then the reply rate. What's your tech like for that element to help your users get even better and not just not get rejected, but actually get responded to? Sure. So creative marketers deal with the sentiment part of the email. So they write down content and they decide, look, would Kim actually like to read this? Would she find it engaging? Would she be open to responding to it? Um, that's the marketer's job is to be human and to consider what a human would like to read. Um, but what we really focus on with the content is what does the computer think? What does the computer like to read? The email provider. And we, um, we liken what marketers do today um, to be a bit like writing a blog post without considering search engine optimization. You would never do that because you need to consider what the human likes, what the human finds engaging, but also how do computers, how do algorithms respond to your content? So we really focus on that second part. And what we do is we use our network and we'll give you uh, a sample size across both versions of your email of around 100 uh, unique B2B email accounts that are part of the Allegro network. And we'll let you see where each version of your message lands, be it the primary inbox or the spam folder portion of the time. So you can compare the two. So we work as a tool for marketers to say, if I change this keyword, or if I shortened this subject, or if I asked XYZ question, if I asked for time next week versus seeing if they'd like to have a case study from us, what impact does that have on where the email lands, not how the person perceives it? Um, so that's really what we focus on is, is, is doing that optimization for marketers. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, really, it's not about the social psychology side, but the actual computer science. So in that sense, with your network of Allegro users, it does not matter to me as for my intents and purposes of who these emails are going to, if it's in the right vertical, if it's my target audience, we're just basically testing, am I getting past the firewalls? Am I tricking the computer? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So um, it, it does matter uh, that the email accounts are unique and that they are genuine email accounts that things happen in, you know, every day. Anyone can turn around tomorrow and set up thousands of, you know, email accounts in a batch that are basically fake. You won't get good actionable data from those accounts. So what we've done at Allegro and spent a long time building is a network of B2B accounts that people use each day for business that have communications inside them that, as far as the email providers are concerned, are just real normal email users. Um, so you can extract data that's valuable and actually see the difference that it would have um, on sending a message to your target audience. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. What about the usability of your platform? I mean, from your users, right, um, and relating to this myself, I'm guessing that most of the people who are using Allegro are not necessarily in the tech universe, right? We're not coders, not developers, et cetera. You know, salespeople who are more focused on the human side. So did you take the usability and how functional and how easy this product is to use into mind? And what did that kind of process look like for you? 
Yeah, so it's an interesting point. You know, developers do definitely have a look. Everyone's security department wants to see everything nowadays before <laughs> it gets implemented. Sure. So there's that aspect. We definitely want things to be developer friendly um, as well. But you're right. It's typically someone in marketing. Um, sometimes what we often have found is the high level person who evaluates the product before it gets implemented tends to be much more initiative based. So they know there's an issue here. They're going to select a vendor to help with it. Then after that point, they can be a bit more hands-off. And what they usually do is assign someone who's much more data-driven and, and analytical um, to, to function and use the platform uh, each day to, to derive value from it. Um, so that would usually be someone like a marketing analyst or uh, a director of marketing or someone who works in demand generation, so understands the email process really well. So our users are um, not technical as in they're not writing JavaScript. They don't know how to do that usually, um, although I'm sure there's one or two, uh, but they are they are analytical and they like data. So we, we built the platform with that in mind because we wanted to be the platform in this space, especially that helps the businesses which are doing the most technically advanced things, are the leaders in their industry, um, rather than you know necessarily businesses that might just be getting started and really just need to focus on the basics. So when we built the platform, we already had a bit of experience because we had built a marketing automation platform before building this version of the product. Um, so we, we knew a bit about UI and UX and how to design a good customer experience around that. Um, but one of our biggest decisions when it came to design was making sure that the platform was a system of record, um, but also a system of action. So a lot of the time nowadays with technology, you have systems that give you lots of data, they calculate things and you go inside there and look and at like, the great, charts. now what? Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, great, but, but what do I do with the information? So we really wanted to make sure we're a system of action as well. And that comes down to content testing. So letting marketers enter their own unique content, um, work as a platform so they can get creative, change things around and find the best possible content for themselves using uh, our network. But also, um, we, we like to act almost as like an email coach for businesses that use us because we monitor thousands of live active spam folders every day. So we profile what lands in that those folders on a daily basis, and we drop what we call insights to our users inside the platform. And we'll say to them, hey, we notice campaigns that have the highest open rates tend to start um, at this time. or they tend to be tapered in this way, meaning they start with six emails on the first day, 10 on the next, so on and so forth. And we'll take them through those patterns as well as maybe these keywords are associated most with the spam folder. So we want you to avoid using them. Um, so we like to act as a bit of a coach as well inside the platform when it comes nice. to analyzing the data. Is that coaching and that analyst analysis, thank you, I do speak English, uh, limited to my own campaigns? Or is this data that you're actually pulling from the entire network? Like, am I able yeah, to sure. benefit so, from, you know, the, the entire happenings? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's all anonymized. Um, but we're able to monitor live inboxes and spam folders every day, uh, because they're real email accounts connected. So we profile that data, we analyze it ourselves. And you know, some of it will be best practices, like set up your DMARC, set up your SPF. Others will be very unique insights about you know things that we've noticed from the spam folders right here and now this month, because things are changing so quickly. Um, you need to be on the cusp and always looking for uh, you know trends and things to avoid, as well as new uh, phrases or strategies you might want to implement to make sure you remain front of mind for buyers. Thank you.
Perfect. Um, talking about your company, I was reading in your website some of your cultural values, play to win, customer first, ownership, which is really important. Is there anything else you can share with us? Yeah, so the, the two that you didn't mention were a bias towards scale and complete transparency. Um, so we, we can pick up with those. Um, you know, when we say bias towards scale, um, what we're talking about is, you know, we're, we were all technologists when we started the company um, and we want to build processes, uh, not have to have jobs where people come in each day and they're doing kind of mindless things like, you know, entering data again and again or copy and pasting over and over. We just think that in today's day and age, you know, if you want people to be happy at work, which they should be because they're spending a lot of their life there, they should be able to create processes and systems that run without them being awake and watching them all the time. So that's something we really believe in for people to feel fulfilled and like they're having an impact that's bigger than just what they can do and achieve each day with the hours that they have. So that's our aspect of, you know, bias towards scale. And then transparency is, is a tough one, right? Because you don't want to give everyone that joins the company all the information at their disposal. It's just not feasible. Um, you can't give them access to, you know, financial data if they don't work in that department, so on and so forth. So how do you be truly transparent at a small company when you're managing those things? And really, uh, the way I think about it now, after obviously in the past having made mishires, um, you know, having got things wrong, um, one of the easiest questions we ask ourselves to, to know if we're going to be able to be transparent with someone and if it's a good hire or someone we should bring to the team or someone we shouldn't, is we ask ourselves, you know, would I be happy to show X person that's interviewing or this new employee that we've hired, would I, would I be happy for them to come in and literally shadow everything I do for a day, you know, without, you know, a moment's notice, uh, without worrying about what they might think. And I think that's a good way to keep yourself centered as in, are you doing good every day? <laughs> are you doing the right things? Um, and also, are they the right person for the company? Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we think about transparency and culture. Yeah, to me, transparency is, I think, in a lot of, like you're laying out, <clears throat> synonymous with trust, right? Can I trust you? And maybe even just that honest thing that is, I'm not able to share that this is why, but there's still that transparency and that freedom to be able to at least ask. And in asking, knowing that there are no, you know, potential negative consequences of that, and just to have genuine true, I think, honest conversations and the safe space, I think, that that, that creates. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I share our revenue data with everyone at the company who joins. Um, there's there's no real questions that are ever off limits. There are things where I would just say to someone sometimes, look, you could do that if you wanted to, but it's really not your focus day to day. It's not why you're here. So I don't really see the point in you having access to that. Um, you can if you really want to and we can go through it. Um, but I just don't think it's going to help you achieve your targets and goals, which is, you know, one of our values as well as being, you know, results oriented um, and, and driven to, to hit the targets that we set. Uh, so that comes into play as well. Great. So we're coming to the final minutes of today's show today. And I think it would be a miss to not go back to the very beginning, which is the co-founder element and the family venture that you've entered into, which I think is relatively unique, not unheard of, but probably less common than more common. What has that particular experience been for you and what might be a pro of that and perhaps a con that people who might be considering this type of adventure to bring into thought? 
Yeah, sure. So to, to pick up on that briefly, my, my co-founder Radu Afraya is not actually one of our brothers. He, he <laughs> he's not actually brother, legally, yeah. uh, he's not I actually love like legally a adopted by us. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. I, I love him like a brother and we treat him like one, absolutely. Um, but I we call him a brother, brother as a joke. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, so he's not legally a brother, but um, he, he is uh, our co-founder uh, and CTO. The question, though, now I've made sure I clarified that. <laughs> um, the question was, you know, the pros and the cons. I mean, the pro is um, when you're starting a company, especially in technology, but really in any business, I suppose, um, there's so much uncertainty. Um, the one thing you don't want to be uh, uncertain about is, do you trust the person? You know, are they going to be there tomorrow? Um, is there things you don't know about them? So I would just say having a really deep relationship with the people you're working with and understanding them as people before you start a company together um, is probably a very good thing. And that's a pro of, of obviously starting with someone in your family as you've known them, I would expect for a while. Um, and then a, a con, um, I'm not sure, uh, I have a think about that. I haven't that. found one yet. Um, um, I would say other people joining the company might find it unusual sometimes. Uh, that's probably one of the, the cons is when, you know, someone else comes in your first two hires, how do you make sure they don't seem like, the, you know, they're an outsider? So how do you make sure you, 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 you have that level of um, inclusion is probably something to be wary or of. Perhaps this, um, this expectation of a checks and balances or something that you might not think is happening if it's family oriented. Yeah, I, I don't know what you, what do you mean by that specifically? Like, like a checks and balances, like, I don't know how most democratic governments are arranged where you have like limited powers, right? Um, that the legislation needs the executive branch and there's the judicial branch and whatever. So, um, and then maybe the expectation of maybe that's not happening if, you know, the founders yeah, sure. owners are related. That's an interesting point, actually. So it's, it's something we thought could be an issue. Um, and we just solved it from day one. We basically said, you know, we're, we're going to have equity and we're going to have ownership of the company, obviously a significant amount of it, both of us and everyone who joins. Um, but um, there has to be uh, essentially not a, a democratic way of decision-making in a corporate environment. It is a bit more of a dictatorship, especially in the early stages. So we made very clear that, look, we value each other's opinions and we all weigh in on things. We're not afraid to voice our emotions, but there are going to be, you know, the buck stops with, uh, you know, with mm -hmm. us eventually calls and there will be someone that does have, have the power to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this because um, without that, things can degenerate obviously into a, a lot of arguments. I would say one of the more lighthearted downsides um, I talk about would be in the early days before people used to put their cameras on and zoom. And we were obviously a very small company. Um, mm -hmm. People used to think that because our voices are very similar, people maybe sometimes thought that it was just <laughs> Kieran again, talking to them and changing his email accounts rather that's, than that's actually hilarious. a different person working there. So that's one to keep, uh, to keep an eye on. If you, if you sound very similar to the person you're working with, just let them know you're real. Let <laughs> them know it's not just, yeah, <laughs> you really are different. Even your twin brother is he, cause that would even more. <laughs> no, he's he's a little older and he, he's grown a beard, so he does look a little bit different to me now. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we've come to the end of our show today. Rory, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your experience, your company story with us. It certainly has been enlightening. Uh, and yeah, um, please stick around as we kind of come off of air. Uh, today was the last show for the week, but of course, Catch us on Monday morning, excuse me, afternoon, 12 o'clock Pacific for the recap show where we'll, we will be sharing our thoughts on this week's shows and 
introducing next week's shows. So until then, have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you again, Rory, and thank you, America, as always. Stay safe. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.